Welcome to Spoilers Intended, a podcast about series, novels, and films. For this episode, James S.A. Corey takes us on a little dance for a look at Can Aliens Enhance and Give Humanity a Chance? That's right, we're talking Leviathan Wakes, first book in The Expanse. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Ford, joined as always by Andrew Knuckles. Hello. And Joel Killingsworth. Hello. Oh, that was a little delay. I don't like that. He's, he's staring at I'm me. I'm staring at you because you keep, like, you're inching closer and closer to my greeting. And I, it's mine. I mean. You have your own. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're talking about inching closer and closer. I kept looking at y'all. I was like, he hasn't moved. Well, <laughs> so, no, I've been trying to to add in contextual hellos based on whatever we're talking about. Okay. What? But unfortunately, well, so, like, a, like Red Rising, I said, oi. Which, you know, they're Irish. But. What? <laughs> but I I was not going to attempt to do the Belter Creole from the belt. Oh, that would. You'd have, I'd need a lot of practice and run up for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just couldn't do it. So I'm trying I just to think don't. of how you even do a greeting in that. And I can't. So we're going to move on now. <laughs> Before we jump right into Leviathan Wakes. That's right. Coming up for a little nap. We are we, <laughs> a very, very, very long, nap. a very long nap, thousands of years, tens of thousands, tens of thousands, actually of probably years, longer probably, than that. Yeah. Anyways, we're going to do a little discussion before we just go digging down to wake up a Leviathan. Yep. Into our favorite fictional detectives. Okay. Because that kind of ties into this first book and we'll, we'll get into that maybe a little bit in the uh, pre-spoiler zone and then really in depth mm-hmm. in the spoiler zone. But yeah. So I'm going to kick this off to Andrew. <laughs> so they don't know what my, we, what my choice is. We've been waiting with bated breath. Yeah. In, in utter suspense. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. Yeah. I said that already. I know. You said you it, but I didn't. Me. I ignored it. <laughs> my Okay. So my, my favorite fictional detective of all time, honestly, is Inspector Clouseau from Pink Panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the the series of movies called the Pink Panther. Yeah, not the animated. That's, not yeah, not that's the very animated, different. Yeah, um, he it, it they're they're more just parodies of of Inspector films. Um, yes, and they're hilarious from like the nineteen fifties and sixties. Um, I think probably the best film that he was in was uh, Pink Panther Returns. With um, I can't um, Richard Dreyfuss, I think. Maybe, maybe I'm having a hard time playing. You, you have you have the um, power. I, I, in your I did pocket. not. I did not look it up beforehand because <laughs> he was he's. But he's just a. a we might have looked over his shoulder and seen. Uh, Inspector Clouseau is a a a buffoon. Yeah. In the yes that his um a bumbling buffoon a bumbling buffoon that has been promoted with his um incompetence, in, incompetence yeah. up to the the form of inspector and he consistently will bumble his way through these these capers of him trying to figure out who the bad guy is and uh, he he always comes ahead but uh, in the most um terrible fashions imaginable most of the time at everyone else's expense so in the original run the character was played by peter sellers mm-hmm. yes but there is there were two films where it was it was played by steve martin Mm-hmm. Um, oh, what, those were those were kind of almost reboot. They, yeah, they were yeah, reboots, they're, yeah. they're reboot uh, kind of material. What's what's your opinion on that? Like, is that just a uh, don't even bother or? Um, 
So it's really hard because the Peter Sellers ones are so funny. Mm-hmm. Just, like they still hold up. Like They're we, such we, a classic. Um, and Steve Martin, I, one, he's never really hit it off with me, like just with his comedic style. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think they capture the same um, energy that Peter yeah. Sellers had from the original, especially with like Cato and mm-hmm. um and just all of like the the running gags that they have where like he he has a bag of groceries and then the the rice is falling on the ground well peter sellers himself is such a comedic whirlwind right mm-hmm. like it's it's like trying to follow robin williams right how yeah. do you how do you even start yeah yeah <laughs> well and steve martin is kind of i think as a comedian, he's kind of better as almost the straight man role. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, like, really like not. Father of the Bride is, right, is a good yeah. example. Like that's really not what you can do as Puso. No, you have to you're be. not the straight man. You have to be an idiot and you also have to be this kind Supremely of. Supremely confident mm. idiot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and Peter Sellers just, just does such an amazing job. Probably my favorite scene of his is whenever he is. Um, dressed up in disguise as this um, this old like sea pirate, mm-hmm. and he has this inflatable parrot on his shoulder, <laughs> and the, the, the parrot uh, gets a leak in it when he's trying to talk to the guy that he's he's like um, trying to like get information from. And mm-hmm. every like couple seconds, he has to pump up the pirate with <laughs> or the parrot with his, his arm, and it is just like and eventually he pumps it up so much that it shoots off of his shoulder. <laughs> That is God. Oh man! If you if you've never seen the Pink Panther films, they're fantastic. And they're it's, so it's fun. Honestly, pretty quite possible for you not to have because they're not like huge uh, the, market yeah, movies, um, and they're, they're fairly old at this point. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Um, you can get them off Amazon Prime. That's where we watched them. Okay. Uh, we watched all through all of them at maybe like last year, I think, during mm-hmm. during the height of pandemic gotcha. stuff, but. Uh, yeah, totally, totally watch it if you never have before. They're just fantastic. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to toss this over to Joel. <laughs> okay. I-, I bet he did not pick Pink Panther. No, I did not pick Pink Panther. <laughs> I threatened, I threatened to pick whatever you picked, but it turns out I that actually I'm, I'm not going to considered it and it would have been hilarious <laughs> if we had ended up on the same thing because it was in my, in my wheel. Yeah. Okay. But I am selecting Archie Goodwin from the Nero Wolf novel series. Okay. Okay. So Nero Wolf is the archetypical. He keeps saying that word. I, I don't think he means. What I, am, he means. I am completely, fully, and utterly pronouncing every single syllable. You so just go during away. the pre-show, we thought he was saying near N E A R or narrow or, or narrow. narrow. I really wasn't sure. But he's saying Nero. 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 Like the Roman. Nero. Yeah. Like the Roman emperor. Thank you. Thank you for expounding upon that, which was already crystal clear. <laughs> Anyway, so the book series mm-hmm. about the archetypical uh, uh, detective genius who is kind of a recluse and is, you uh, know, too smart for everyone. Yeah, too smart for everyone, but also is just very strange, very weird, you know. And so, like, he's got quirks like Sherlock Holmes, like uh, Poirot, you know, that, that kind of mm-hmm. style mm-hmm. of detective. And so his his assistant is Archie Goodwin, and he's. Archie is really the main character of the the book series. Uh And, you know, much like Dr. Watson is for for Sherlock Sherlock Holmes, except that Archie himself is close to genius level. He just always has to he's always in Wolf's shadow. But what his his real strength is, 
And the reason that that he stays on with Wolf is that Wolf specifically hired him to annoy Wolf enough so that Wolf would work. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. but, but <laughs> you, you kind of like with those kind of, I'll say, eccentric genius mm-hmm. characters, you kind of need to have someone to to, to the, push the them in a, in a direction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so like he is intentionally and with license annoying and acoustic <laughs> to Wolf in a very fun manner. And he's he's got like a a perfect memory, right? Like he he can remember facts and figures mm-hmm. and conversations that he can repeat verbatim days later. Um, so like he's he's he himself is a highly um competent character. Um, but he's he's bored a lot of the time. There was one one novel where one of the best parts of the book was he got thrown in jail by the local cop for being too uppity or whatever, you know? Um, and, and over the course of one night, he organized everyone who was in the local jail into a prisoner's union to appeal for better living conditions (laughs) just because he was bored. (laughs) Wow. I mean, you know, yeah. What else, what else are you going to entertain yourself somehow? So anyway, that is that is my favorite fictional detective. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's so so Stephen, what about what about you? Well, Joel kind of tread upon my territory. He's already mentioned the name. I'm taking the classic here, Sherlock Holmes. So the reason why I really want to go with the classic, the quintessential, you know, he's talking about, oh, well, this person is, you know, an archetype in the mold of, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is the OG. Yeah. And one of the reasons it works so well is because, yeah, you go to the Conan Doyle, you know, the classic, I'm sorry, Sir Conan Sir Doyle. Sir Conan Doyle. He is a knight. Got to get it right. You go to the classic books and you get, you know, all of Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah. This, this is who he is as a character. But if that is not necessarily to your liking, there, because it's been in the public domain, there are a whole host of other interpretations of him. If you prefer, say, Robert Downey Jr.'s interpretation. Mm-hmm. Or, Which he actually did a really good no, job. It's, it's actually in, pretty good, in the, yeah. the films. Or Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was in yeah. the... Yep. Um, uh, <laughs> I make fun of, we, we make fun of it so much that sometimes I'm like, wait, did I use his real name? Yeah. It was a TV show with um, the guy who... Uh, Martin Freeman. Yeah, Martin Freeman. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's a good show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that's kind of where the appeal is. Because like for, for Joel, you know, oh, well, this guy is, you know, the archetypal, you know, Sherlock Holmes style. Well... You don't have to go anywhere else. You can always have Sherlock Holmes and you can get slightly different flavorings of it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really fun because yeah. just in, in whatever format you want, you know, there's even uh, kind of the the story that plays off of him having a sister, I think. I think it's a uh, Enola, Enola Holmes yes. was the, the Netflix one. It's right. actually but pretty the, good. The, char- yeah. the character was created for that movie though. So that's very, fairly recent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is recent, but what I'm saying is you can catch any type of flavor and that's just right, another right, example right. of the, the flavor that still kind of fits within the umbrella, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's not maybe an original. I think it is approved or endorsed by the estate. Uh, I think. No, what, no, no, it was not endorsed no, by the estate. Was. Well, either way. Yeah. Getting a field. Uh, so Sherlock Holmes, you know, this, this is the, archetype by which basically all detectives are measured against. Yeah, they, it's all derivative after that. And it's, everything is derivative after that. All the, the you know, genius who can't stay focused, well, that's Sherlock Holmes. You know, crazy, weird work ethics, Sherlock Holmes. Annoys the police all the time, Sherlock Holmes. Like, all of these things have been done, and they were all done by Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So it's it's really easy, especially once you say, well, I really like this 
flavor of it. I really like this version of it. It's very easy to find something really grass because you're really still getting, you know, if you go to like the, the uh, I guess it was BBC that did, that has been it for Cumberbatch. Yeah. If you go to that version, you still get basically the exact same stories that you would get out of the book, mm-hmm. but with a more modern, the modern take it. on it. Yeah. yeah. So you can find it kind of spanning across all kinds of different uh, eras, I guess is the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for. So yeah, it's something I really appreciate. And, and it, again, it's the archetypal, this is the genius connecting the dots of connecting the dots that, that he sees like four years ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's also a character in a board game for unmatched and his whole deck is all about guessing what your opponent is trying to play. And oh, really? It right. Then it has reversals on it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's actually a really cool. It's, it's a horrible mechanic because your hand is only five cards. So once they have a, once your opponent has a good idea what your hand is, it's just like my agency, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also very cool. So. Yeah. A, an honorable mention for, for that archetype too is uh, Basil from Great Mouse Detective. Just, it's just furry Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> well, but, but so Sherlock Holmes is actually in his universe. Right. Yeah. He and, lives, and he, he is, lives in like a mouse hole under. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Baker Street. Baker, Baker 22 one yeah. B. 22 one. That was yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, it's, it's the exact same thing just for kids. <laughs> yeah, like, again, you can find it in any flavor. Mm-hmm. It just, it exists. Yep. Professor Radigan was pretty terrifying as a kid, though. Oh, he was. Okay. <laughs> no, that's, well, that could be a whole separate topic on its own of the idea that back in, you know, the, the 80s and the early 90s, it was just like, oh, it's animated? Rubber stamp it is for kids. <laughs> Doesn't matter what kind of horror is coming out of that paper. Yeah, well, um, on that note, too, um, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven was like nightmare fuel. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like the, the whole the, like the, heaven versus hell. Yeah, well, like, and just like the, the character designs and just, oh, man, it was just terrifying. Yeah, was, even even um, the first American tale, Fievel, um not Fievel Goes West, but the first one. Just, just American, American tale. tale. Okay, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, know if there was it. a subject. You already had yeah. it. <laughs> Um, but the, the finale with that, with like the weird, like mouse balloon mm-hmm. mecha mm-hmm. thing is just terrifying. Or, or you just do like, you know, uh, secret in them. Yeah. I mean, or, I mean, you could even go even further watership down. Oh gosh. Okay, let's not. <laughs> Anyways, now that we have gone far afield off into what could be another topic for a later <laughs> time. Yeah. Time to refocus back onto today's topic, which is Leviathan Wakes. The first yeah. book of The Expanse. Thank you. Yes. Jumped right on in there. I'm going to hand this over to Joel. Joel, you want to give us maybe a little synopsis? Yes. So uh, synopsis on Leviathan Wakes. We find ourselves in the, uh, it's not quite near future. It's it's kind of middle middle future. The mid future. The mid future. future. It's not, not the far future. It's not the this near is, future. This is mama bear future. <laughs> <laughs> mm, this part is just right. So, uh, Humans have expanded from the Earth to colonize the solar system. Right. Their Mars is undergoing um, terraforming. It is still several generations away from being a- for people to be able to live on the surface of Mars. But that is that's the dream. That's the goal. That's that's what's happening there. And then uh, asteroids and dwarf planets all throughout the the asteroid belt have been colonized and mined for resources and there are even bases on moons of of saturn and jupiter and and all of that stuff going on i don't think there's anything on saturn i think it's just um just the moons of jupiter. i think it's just jupiter if i if i remember correctly because um getting some pet- when, when stuff happens at the yeah. at towards the in later on in the series it it all happens around saturn 
Anyways, carry okay, on. If, anyway, I remember, if I remember correctly. Regardless. So there's a little bit of extra exploration beyond the belt, but the belt in general is kind of the border of human expansion. Yeah. <clears throat> Everything beyond that is getting into real risky territory. Right. And so you have essentially th- uh, three groups of humanity where you have Earth, which is the the birthplace of humanity and so therefore has a lot of cultural importance, but it is it is overburdened, overpopulated and and just kind of old and worn down and then you've got the other major power in the solar system which is mars which is sleek and trim because everything has to have a purpose and everyone has to be doing their job because there's no room for error in the dream of terraforming and there there hasn't been room for error in decades right it's it's kind of like the starship troopers meme where she looks at the camera and says i'm doing my part that's literally everyone in mars yeah and so and so they are a rival to earth in power because they they may be fewer in number but they're they're stronger in will and technology Mm -hmm. and then you have the people of the belt which outnumber everyone else by a lot but the belt is so disparate and and strewn about and there's no central form of government or whatever well, so this is kind of the the exploited class mm-hmm. of of civilization it's it's very fragment it's very difficult to organize because yeah. it, it covers such a different such a broad not just geographical region but also there are so many different cultures spread across it's so many different like old animosities mm-hmm. etc well and it's uh the the main conflict of the of the show or the the book well, excuse me we're talking about not show um, the book is ba- essentially class warfare is kind of what it comes down to mm-hmm. of Earth is still trying to hold on to the control that it has over the belt. And the belt is like, we don't want that. Right. So you you have, you know, you have these three different essentially political Entities. groups. Factions. Right. Yeah. And the the book follows through from from the the perspective of a a belter detective on one of the major stations in the belt and a uh, an earther um uh, ice hauler ice hauler commander kind of, yeah you know, works on a cargo ship just just dude running the the space lanes he's like first guy. mate in the yeah. on the yeah, ship yeah he's the exo um, and so we've got these two main characters and from their perspectives we watch a a grand political opera take place where uh, these the the two major powers of the inner planets are uh, positioning against each other and the the people of the belt in order to exert their political control over the situation. And then there's uh, a shadowy uh, conspiracy going on that that maybe ties everything together. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's that's a pretty good summation. Yeah. It, it's kind of it has like a little bit of. Um... A, a traditional like hero's journey ish in there on top of a gumshoe detective story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's one of many that have been labeled game of Thrones in space. Game of Thrones in space is a very good example of, um, a close analog to the style of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's that scope, at least for this first. There are book. no knights. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are no knights and there are no horses, no dragons. Um, anyways, so our composite score mm-hmm. for this, and this is, um, you know, composite between the three of us looking at four main uh, categories for novels, which is setting, character, plot, and the the writing, so that the actual style of the, the written word. And uh, all of that together, we gave it a 8.7 out of 10. 
that's that's pretty high. So it's it's, it's mm-hmm. quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a separate entertainment value score, um, which between uh, the three of us was a nine point three. So there are a few perhaps technical issues that we dinged on it a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but it is absolutely a really a must read if you enjoy science fiction. Or yeah, if you have political intrigue in any, any way, any interest in hard sci-fi, if you're a, you know an Asimov or uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Arthur fan, C. Clarke, any, uh, Ray Bradbury, Bradbury, yeah, any of those classic hard sci-fi authors. If you are at mm-hmm. all a fan of any of them, The Expanse is one of the best modern examples of about as hard a sci-fi as we're going to get. Yeah. It, it's it, yeah, it's it's like right on the borderline of true hard sci-fi, but it has a little bit of fantasy in there a little bit of magic yeah yeah well i mean it it any it expands on that any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic right well well, but the the technological advances that that humanity has in the book are are with well within reason of what you think could exist right right, right. so like like at at the beginning because like you know it's it is this is the start of a very long series it's a nine book series Mm mm-hmm and so a lot of stuff occurs and there are advances that are made, the, the kinds of things that you expect to see as a, a fictional world grows and changes. Yeah. And but to begin with, the the world building that went into setting this thing up is absolutely first rate. It is it is just about the best I've ever seen because it takes so many of the things that we know and are familiar with in our own solar system. And if you're not familiar with them, you'll become familiar with them. <laughs> jingle berries. Yeah. And no, there's none of there's that. None of that. There's none, none of that. that. No, that's right out. Um, but they, they then, cause, cause like one of the, the main places that you are for most of the story is Ceres, which is a dwarf planet, um, in, in the belt, the asteroid belt that what they have done in, in the world buildings that they said that over the course of generations, they've, they have, uh, caused this this giant rock to rotate mm-hmm. um, and they have carved out the middle of it so that people live on the inside of it at a fraction of the earth's gravity due to centrifugal force because of the rotation of the object. And so it's just thinking through all of the things like what would humans really do if they had to live full time in space mm-hmm. and, and, and what the effects would be on right. their bodies mm-hmm. And there's because because one of the things is that people who who have been out in low gravity for all of their lives, particularly during their development as as infants and children, uh, they they simply did not develop in a way that allows them to withstand normal gravity. And so they can't go onto one of the the inner planets or there will be significant health problems. Yeah. And and there are um, there are definitely plot points that that hint at torture level kind of things for for belt um people that are captured by by the inner um like earth or mars Mm -hmm. and basically using earth's gravity to to basically torture them because their hearts and their body can't actually like withstand the gravity and so it's just a lot of stuff like that not only the geography but thinking through the implications of, well, if we decide that this is what's happening, what are the effects mm. of that? And, and it's just every, everything has a, not necessarily the only answer that could be, but it has a good answer. Yeah. And, yeah. and everything's really believable and it's very tactile feeling, especially mm-hmm. the cultures that S.A. Corey has kind of created 
and and even just like throwing you right into it, you you kind of understand a lot of of where these characters are coming from, what their backgrounds are, and the type of people that they are just because of the culture that they're part of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out that S.A. Corey is a pen name mm-hmm. of two authors who are collaborating to write these. And for the Game of Thrones illusions or whatever, one of them actually worked for George R.R. R. Martin, was one of his personal assistants. Yeah, be- before they, they went off and did their own thing. Before they went off and did their own thing, which, you know, may- maybe that's why he's, his writing slowed down a little. We and, don't know. You know, he just writes blogs now. It's fine. He just talks about the Jets. <laughs> but to, to go back to the world building part, the actual, like, where this project began was actually for a, a, a tabletop role-playing game. It was a it was a setting for for that. Kind I of actually activity. didn't know that. Yeah, which, and which so, is actually pretty cool because there is a RPG set of rules for mm-hmm. the Expanse. Mm-hmm. Which, if but, if we're going to convince Andrew to play D and D, that that would be <laughs> that's, probably that's, the most surprising thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so like it's it's like there was all of this work that that they had already mm-hmm. put into. Well, we've got this great world. Now we just need stories for it. And yeah. a lot of times when when you come so strongly to a project with, well, we've already got this. We just need this other piece to make it work. A lot of times it can feel unbalanced, mm-hmm. uh, but this one doesn't. It it handles the story part well, just as, I mean, not just as well because the world building is just so good. Yeah. But <laughs> and, and that's true of most sci-fis. Yeah. Right? The world, the world that is being built is kind of a character of its own mm-hmm. for most sci-fis because that's what who you're really showing off. Yeah. Um, but to your point about it being written as a tabletop, that makes a lot more sense when you're looking at it from a consistency and rules and things kind of generate organically within it. Yeah. Because the world as a whole, and when I say world, the solar system feels very lived in. Things mm-hmm. are all, mm-hmm. have they've happened for reasonable reasons, even if those reasonable reasons are humans are stubborn and illogical, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And you, you really get the feel of kind of the resource scarcity. Yeah. And you know, you've lived your whole life in space. There are, there are certain things that you are just aren't going to be available. That are always you're always at risk of, like et cetera, et cetera. Not having air or water. Yeah. And how big a deal just, you know, oh well, the water's gonna be difficult this month. Yeah, how or, big a or deal the air is. recyclers are going out. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, like the filters. Yeah. Yeah, there there's such a um there's such a big disparity of of just these characters in these different cultures where, you know, obviously you live on Earth, you have free air and free water mm-hmm. forever. And then, you know, you live theoretically. on theoretically. But you know, you you live you live in the belt, and those are now precious resources that have to be siphoned yeah. or rationed or yeah. whatever. Uh, but but honestly, like even even just world building aside, the 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 actual story for Leviathan Wakes, if you've never read it before, is is really gripping, and it it, it grabs you pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And it once it holds on, it does not stop. No, it does yeah. not let go. Yeah, the the action is is pretty high from the beginning and mm-hmm. it just just keeps going from there mm-hmm. i think my favorite part about the the book was the way that they handled travel yeah because the way that the way that you know the kind of the big uh, light bulb moment that the that is put into the background of this that allowed humanity to proceed this far into space is a a drive an engine that was efficient enough with fuel that you could maintain uh, a, a, a large degree of thrust for essentially indefinite periods of time. And like, I mean, there's, there's still fuel limitations, but they're, they are negligible compared to the fuel limitations that we're dealing with today in yeah. reality. So they, 
they literally can be at one G of thrust and be simulating earth gravity on their ships for half of a journey, go on the float for a minute, flip the whole ship around and then decelerate for the other half of the journey at one G and essentially be under gravity the entire time. And that is, that is absolutely the fastest way that you can get anywhere. And mm-hmm. so the limiting factor from us being able to do that is we just don't have an engine that can that can burn fuel efficiently enough of whatever form to do that. Yeah. Right. Well, of course, also a big limiting factor within the books is how many Gs can you actually withstand? Right. It's not how many Gs can you generate. It's the squishy humans inside the tin can. Because <laughs> you can, you can generate factor. plenty of Gs. Yeah. There's just no one's going to survive. Yeah. And, and a lot of the combat revolves around these very intense maneuvers that that the that the characters have to do to one survive because they're in combat or they're trying to catch something or whatever and there there are limitations to the human body that that don't allow them to go harder than what they are doing right. yeah yeah you have you have the option to outmaneuver your opponent you just may mm-hmm. not survive that maneuver and the, the the one thing that i do really enjoy about this book series is it it does feel that no character is ever safe Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, it just has that kind of, you know, Game of Thrones style feeling where like, you know, this guy could die in any moment, um, and you don't know it until it happens kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic book. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I've it's, read it it's, twice it's, already. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it is really a must read if you're at all interested in the genre. Yeah. But it looks like we've arrived at the intermission. Afterwards, we're burning at high G straight into spoilers. If you aren't ready for spoilers, this is your stop. But before you go, if you liked what you heard, you can support us at patreon.com slash spoilers intended podcast. If you decide to stick around, grab the nearest crash couch and step in, because here comes the juice. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed a short intermission. We are now spoilers free and they are going to be. We are weapons free. Well, no, spoilers are free (laughs) and they come at you fast. You get a spoiler. (laughs) You get a spoiler. Everybody gets a spoiler. (laughs) Alrighty. So we, what was our composite again? Our composite was 8.7. 8.7. So we're going to break down how we got to that number piece with our piece. With our pillars of review. Our rubric. 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 It's a good word. So first up for a novel, we're talking about the setting. We've already alluded to this a little bit, a little earlier in the show because we all really like it. (laughs) Yeah. And on that note, uh, I'm going to kick this one off. Yeah. Mine. Uh, It's a 10. Yeah. I mean, it's fair. I mean, this is basically the perfect near solar system setting, Mm -hmm. right? When we're not talking about, oh, you know. Jumping to galaxies spanning, yeah. uh, like Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever, or like a Dune, uh, yeah, those like, kinds of things. Th- these are all celestial beings that we're Objects. intimately familiar with. Yeah, and I, I think for me the biggest thing, and it, it kind of plays back into uh, from what we talked about with Dune, where you're talking about, oh, well, the shields develop so it prevents this type of weapon. Well, now we've developed a fighting style to penetrate the shield to get around this other obstacle. You see a lot of that within. Uh, the Expanse series as a whole, where 
technological innovations have happened out of the necessity of, well, I want to overcome that problem. And now that I've overcome that problem, I have created this and now I have to find a way to fix this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It builds up very naturally, which obviously it's a sci-fi setting. It, it fits that you see the development, not just uh, over the series, but also right from the get-go where each piece kind of fits in its own place and it makes sense. It has a logic for its existence versus when you have like a fantasy setting where, well, why does that exist? Well, it's always been there. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> well, well, why why does this sword work for that job and this sword doesn't? Well, that one's magic. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. You know, for for sci-fi, you can't have those kinds of catches. You can't have those kind of easy outs. Well, because there there has to be an explanation for it. Yeah, there has to be a reason for it. Because theoretically, humans created it. So yeah. there has to be a reason for the humans to create it, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just the magical tree that's been growing on the riverbank for 10 million years. It's was made for a purpose. Yeah. And right. I, well, I mean, it's it's inherent in science fiction that today, who you are and the place where you are mm-hmm. exist. And between now and the time getting that, there that the 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 piece is set in, like that's a continuum. Right. right. We have to fill in those gaps. Yeah. So I think that for me is is the big piece is that it just feels so realistic and it feels like such a logical outcome from step to step to step because mm-hmm. some sci-fi you know you're taking big leaps because you get to put oh we put ten thousand years in between here and there and yeah then, well, okay well you could develop anything and there could be any reason for this mm-hmm. whereas this being kind of tighter and i really can't remember what it's, year um it is not that far off i mean like it's i think a couple hundred years it's like 2500 it, yeah or something it's, like that. it's really not that far we won't live to see it so yeah, yeah i mean like people <laughs> still use ballistic weapons like there, well, there's I no lasers or anything. I mean, the human body only gets so tough. That's just the reality. <laughs> right, well, on that note, I'm going to kick this over to me, Andrew. Me. Pick me. Too late. Oh, I it's gave mine. It, I gave it to Andrew. Uh, so I also <laughs> gave it a 10. Um, it, honestly, so kind of piggybacking off of off of what you were saying, Joel. Or Stephen, not Ooh. Joel. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Well, it's because Joel was talking over me. I was speaking. <laughs> my mouth was moving. Uh, but, Words were coming out. But yeah, so... Um, Probably on okay, so mostly of whatever you were saying, but I really love how <laughs> the the world the I'll say the solar system, the soul system is so well realized of how lived in it is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it it really feels like you could like this is a logical leap of where it would be if we had you know seven hundred years or whatever of people colonizing space and colonizing the belt and all of these celestial beings that now like they, they live double O no, (laughs) they, they, they just live, you know, with low gravity. So they've, they've Mm -hmm. now they're, they've grown taller because they don't have gravity holding them down like we do here on earth and, and how kind of like Mars would act as as a separate entity where you know like their whole goal is to make mars another earth Mm -hmm. and because of that they have to have this super rigid militaristic structure to their culture because there is no other way to survive right and that is definitely something where like you know whenever we send people to go and colonize mars that's what i would expect it to kind of be is you Everything has to have a purpose. Everything, mm-hmm. everyone has to be doing something that is moving the cause forward. And the the only like like on Earth analog that I can think of is living on a submarine. Yeah, like living on a submarine mm-hmm. where like resources are so 
important. Yeah. Where like, if you don't have air, you're probably going to die. But now imagine raising a family in the submarine and what that does to the kids because generations, generations of children have grown up under the, the, that rigidness. Yeah. Well, and you could, you could even um, make it a little bit more broad and even say um, cultures that, that grow up and live in like Arctic regions Mm -hmm. where there is very low amounts of resources Mm -hmm. beyond maybe just like straight food, but you like getting water or hunting and all this other kind of stuff is, is a lot harder to come by. And just the the way that the authors kind of hammer that in real quickly throughout the throughout the book just makes it so much more of a realistic style story than something like a fantasy like uh, Star Trek, where you're you know it's like, well, everyone lives in this utopia. Oh my gosh, yeah. did you just call Star Trek a fantasy? It is no, a fantasy. Totally a fantasy. Yeah. Actually, I want to. This is a conversation for a completely different time, but I have <laughs> I have a different way of categorizing fantasy and science fiction that I want to pitch at some point. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> Don't leave us in suspense. <laughs> okay, so there's there is such a thing in fantasy, uh particularly talking about magic systems, but like you can broaden it. But there are hard magic systems and there are soft magic systems. Right. And I posit that science fiction is not its own genre. Science fiction is just the technology-based hard fantasy. Oh, get out of here. And it is technically a fantasy. None of us are going to live to see 2500. That, that in and of that. itself, oh, no, I, I feel pretty confident. <laughs> uh, that in itself makes it a fantasy. Oh, I, but Star Wars and Star Trek, those are soft fantasies that are technology-based. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, and I don't Star, hate the categories. I mean, th- honestly, the only, like, the only, like, true, like, hard sci-fi kind of um, books anyways are like the Martian where it's like all math based and well right but like like even the, then you like, have to bring it really close to where we are now yeah right the more steps removed you are from where we are the today, more fantasy it becomes the the well by my categorization the softer it becomes <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't like that well no but the thing is just the word choice <laughs> just okay the, the, the word choice and the inflection I don't like those <laughs> I could do with less of those. Okay. Um, but like, anyway, <laughs> going completely taking a step back from that. So tangent, back back to the plot. Back to the book. Um, I, I think in general, sci-fi as like like the, the core, the soul of uh-huh. sci-fi is best personified in stories where you take those those minimal steps of saying, okay, this is a future that's really plausible and you can see exactly how you get from where we are to, to then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but you don't stop there. Then you say, now we add in this element. This element can be very fantastical. This element can be an enormous technological step. Mm-hmm. This element can be unreasonable. And then ask the question, what now or what then mm-hmm. what happens? What do we do? Yeah. How does that, that variable change everything? Mm-hmm. And that's, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but that is exactly what the protomolecule does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, they do such a good job at, um, throughout the series, they like, it's more like drips of information, um, mm-hmm. or advances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can, and you can see throughout the book series, and I'm not going to get into, you know, obviously details because that's spoilers, but, um, of just like the technological advances that happen because they basically yeah. found the protomolecule. But, mm-hmm. but like, you know, they, they, they've got this, this thing that, I mean, you're, you're shown right up front. There's, there's some 
creepy stuff going on here from the the prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not until like two thirds of the way through the book that you really get a good hard look at this. This thing is a murder machine virus that was originally intended to land on Earth millions of years ago. And it just didn't. Matter. And it the gas giants protected us. Yeah. And it got grabbed by one of the gas giants. And so the human race exists. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and and so like there's still a whole lot of mystery there because you don't know how it works. You don't know what its actual original intent is. You just know this thing is horrifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our control. And the interesting story that happens there is in how do people respond to it? And this is actually a good segue back into a categorization of, of fantasy (laughs) Because the the main difference, because both both hard magic systems and soft magic systems can be helpful and useful in stories. N- neither one of them is inherently superior to the other. Correct. Um, however, you know, if a character, a protagonist is going to use magic or in this case, technology, because technology is magic. If if you come up to me and say, we do not live in a world of magic, I will fight you. <laughs> <laughs> Because we have closets full of ice that are powered by lightning that we trapped in metal spider webs. Oh, I can go this way. Is, I can this go is a way world further, of magic. I can go way further than that. If if a, a guy in the proper position, wearing the proper robes, write the right words on a piece of paper, then you are summoned. You must appear at a specific place at a specific time. It's because true. they did that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Modern magic is real trippy. But okay. Anyway, but anyway, anyway, that was that was a tangent. I'm not done. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but for if a character is going to use magic to resolve a conflict, then it has to be hard, or it won't be. It has to be a hard magic system, um, or it won't be satisfying because you don't understand what they're doing. Right. So yeah. So, but the soft magic system, as long as the characters aren't using it to resolve issues, it's just, as long as it's just creating problems, then it's great. And so. As long as it's not, as long as you're not solving stuff with the power of friendship. Right. So in Leviathan Wakes, we have the hard magic system, which is all of the cool technology Mm -hmm. that has been speculated about Mm -hmm. by the authors and saying, this is how we envision the future being. Yeah. And so we get a whole lot of conflict resolution through the use of this hard magic system being this technology that does not exist for us, but exists in this story. Whereas we have a whole lot of problems being created by the soft magic system of the alien virus. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah, I like uh, that well, explanation. I agree. So there you go. That yeah. is that is why science fiction is not inherently different. What was your plot? What was your setting score? Yeah, you never gave us a score. It was a ten, baby. <laughs> all right, that all around. Stuff was amazing. Yeah. All right, no, I cool. mean, it, it. The the world building for for expanse in general is just amazing. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, they they, you know they, they take their their very strong world building and then they just kind of put some of like some of the other stuff on their back and they're just like, yeah, we can handle this. Yeah. It's no big yeah. deal. Well. <laughs> Before we jump into the next category, one last point about setting. I think that's sort of relevant since Andrew brought up Star Trek, where everyone lives in a utopia, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's very important for this setting that at the end of the day, despite all the technological advancements, the expansion of humanity, people are still people. Yeah. They are still greedy. They still make bad choices. They still have intrinsic wants. And they're they, still miserable. 
also that. Yeah, life <laughs> is miserable. So it's it's very important that we life have pain. A, oh, there you go. A bunch of that where humans are so humans. Everything, every emotion, et cetera, that they are feeling is very relatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because they are still definitely humans, despite the big time leap, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's very important for the setting and very important for the reader engagement throughout as we jump into our next category and talk about character. Oh, character. Let's see. I'm. Do I give this to Andrew? You shouldn't give it to me. I just talked a lot. I'll give it to Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. Uh, so I gave character a seven. Woo. Um, uh, well, okay. So the uh, the thing that, that really happens a lot with uh, uh, like hard sci-fi or generally like harder sci-fi books mm-hmm. is that characterization of like the actual cast of, of people that they have that are your vehicles into the story generally are either one note characters and they don't really get much change mm-hmm. or it takes a very, very long time for them to get any type of real development because it is not about it, the story is not specifically about them and their, their journey, like a hero's journey. Mm. It is specifically about, the environment that they are experiencing yeah and uh what what our characters holden um in particular because he's one of our main characters uh he is experiencing something that one he was not he did not want to be a part of he just wanted to do the right thing and and go and um to this distress beacon and now mm-hmm. he is just thrust into this position to where well i was the leader on on the canterbury now i have to be the leader here mm-hmm. yeah. and but unfortunately for him, he doesn't really get any other real development uh, until later on in other books. And he doesn't, um, he, he stay like he is very predictable and you know how he is going to land on any kind of decision that he needs to make. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you, and you can tell that pretty much within the first couple chapters of, of, of from his perspective. Then you have Miller on the other hand, which was, it's our, our, gumshoe detective who is just you know he is a a tried and true belter that is kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place of just trying to exist on series and then also uh he is given a um uh, basically a, a an unsolvable case by his his um uh, commanding officer or whatever superior, superior. And, and it's kind of your your typical like cop gets obsessed with case kind of kind yeah of story well in, and you know like towards the end of the book you know he he like he actually like falls in love with julia yeah and uh or julie yeah i'll say julie yeah, yeah yeah julie and um not cowboy bebop <laughs> and he <laughs> and miller is actually the one that does get um, a decent amount of of character to, character growth throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the only problem is, is, and the reason why this happens is because he has to make the the choice to die and and sacrifice himself to basically stop Eros from from um, destroying the earth. Destroying the earth. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, uh, you, like, there are, there. Are, I don't know. Like, it's I I don't really like Miller as mm-hmm. a character. I mm-hmm. I I've I don't like detective type characters. One reason why I picked Inspector Clouseau as a parody, <laughs> yeah, instead of instead of a serious detective uh-huh. that that is um, really passionate about their job, in which he he kind of is, but he kind of isn't. He doesn't really care about his actual job, but then he he finds the passion to find Julie Mao, mm-hmm. and and that drives him throughout the story. And I don't know, it just doesn't do it for me. And I know Joel has basically the exact opposite 
Um, well, that sounds like sounds like it's my turn. Oh, I was just gonna I was gonna butt right <laughs> in. I, Andrew's like, I'm gonna hand out this nice transition. I'm just gonna jump in. So anyways. so. <laughs> oh no. I also gave it a seven. Oh man. For exactly the opposite reason. <laughs> and, that, and that is that out of our two main characters, Miller and Holden, Miller actually has an arc, and Holden doesn't. And I knocked it for Holden not having an arc. Well, and that's totally fine. Yeah. Um. And I guess like. You know, I try and and look at this book as this is the only book that I have read at this point. Mm-hmm. And I can't I can't look at I've already read the full series and I know exactly what happens and where his character right. goes. And, and Holden yeah. gets an arc. I don't I don't think that it's 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 Holden doesn't really become interesting as far as I'm concerned until really late in the series. Mm-hmm. I think he's the last character that you actually care to get, well, to get and, an arc. And, and most stories generally the main character is meant to be less interesting than the people around him i mean i they're a vehicle for the reader meant to you you are you are meant to be that could be that could be a philosophy i disagree with that philosophy and i think that it is it is it weakens stories that could be stronger i i maybe but we don't know if that they subscribed to that philosophy when they were writing this either yeah so, but that that is a philosophical choice that you could could make. But um I I think kind of pivoting from that into some praise, the cast of secondary characters, particularly the crew, the the surviving crew that's shipping with Holden. Of the um, Tachi until they turn it into the Rosanante. Are all very, very well developed for not being point of view characters. Yeah, they yes. they all have very specific quirks that come through quickly. You get to know the characters through a lot of good dialogue and interaction, um, and so like it's it's a really well rounded cast of characters. Um, and so on on the secondary and tertiary level character cast I are more interesting than the main characters. Are more interesting than one of them because he didn't have an arc. Miller no, no, is not interesting at Miller, all. Miller is my favorite character out of the whole book. Miller, I like tragic figures. He isn't even tragic. He's absolutely tragic. No, his, he is the end not. of his arc is he gives up his life. That's yeah. tragedy. That's what is? How is that not tragedy? You could see it a mile away. That doesn't have anything to do. You with You could it. see Hamlet's ending a mile away. What's <laughs> what's the? How is that not but tragedy? Actually, one of the tenets of like the classical tragedy is that it is very obvious to the audience where this is headed. By by definition, sure. <laughs> Just saying, that's one of the, like one of the tenets <laughs> of how tragedy works. Anyways. I, I did not care about Miller's sacrifice. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so, anyway. So on setting, we all agreed and gave it a 10. Yeah. On character, we all agreed and gave it a 7, except I gave it a 9. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was looking down on my book. Yeah, I know. You're, I saw you check at the note. They were like, wait, did I get this number wrong? So for me, you know, we've got, we've got a Miller apologist and we've got a sort of hold an apologist. Not really. Yeah, see, that's I the mean, thing. he's not a very You're, interesting character really, either. Really I just we don't have, like Miller. Really, we have a Miller apologist and a Miller don't like it just. Hater? <laughs> yeah, hater. You can say hater. It's hater, fine. It's whatever. <laughs> either way, for me, and maybe this is kind of why I connect with something like, say, Cowboy Bebop animated series. Uh-huh. These are like the perfect kind of characters because they're already developed. They're fully yeah. formed human beings. This this is not the YA sixteen year old protagonist where they fresh have in the world. To, yeah, where they have right. to accept their calling and all this right. other. These these stuff. people accepted their calling. Holden joined the Navy and then washed out ten years ago. All all of the members of his crew are all people who have 
experienced a ton of things in their life. Like you don't end up on the Canterbury because you are a shining beacon of success. <laughs> yeah, they, they is, are all a dead end. Yeah, these, job. these are these are people who are at the the end of they're, they're their either, career's they're, trajectory. They're either running from their past mm-hmm. or they don't have a future. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Miller is same boat. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't really have a future. He really isn't pleased with what his life is like. It's just he's kind of mechanically going through it before this case lands in front of him. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's kind of my favorite type of character because there is no pressure to develop. It's all about peeling back layers. How much yeah, more and, and, and can we learn? seeing how mm-hmm. deep the character can actually go right. and how, like, where, where their strengths actually lie. Right, exactly. And again, we, we praise the setting for this. It feels very lived in. It feels very real. Well, just by default, these characters feel way more real than 16-year-old wonder child who has learned the magic the first time they attempted it because they are the chosen one who is the prodigy that will fulfill all the prophecies, right? Like that is an unrealistic character yeah. just by default. Mm-hmm. Whereas these characters, because they are, they have lived their lives. Like they are not 16-year-olds. These are, I mean, Holden's, uh, in, Holden's his in his mid-40s. 40s, and Miller's probably about the same, pushing 50, uh, About, yeah. yeah. Uh, the youngest is Naomi. Yeah. So with that, that kind of anyways moving on uh <laughs> so for me these are the, these are the kind of characters that i enjoy because again there's nothing to develop it's all about peeling back how does this how does the thing that is currently happening impact them and relate to prior decisions etc cetera, etc cetera. because you mm-hmm. look at if i remember right holden was dishonorable discharge right he yes. was which is generally speaking some kind of failing personal failing as in, in the eyes of the military mm-hmm. And now his whole thing is he's going to do the right thing. The distress beacon is there. He's going to go to it because it's the right thing. He makes this broadcast that starts a literal full solar system war because <laughs> it was the right thing. And that's kind of like his. That's his shtick. Yeah. I mean, that, oh yeah, that is Holden's thing forever. He's going to do the right thing and there's going to be problems because of it. And yep. those are the only two constants of Holden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I, for me, these are, these are kind of obviously not perfect because I only gave it a nine. Because while they do do a really good job, y'all kind of touched on this, of really building up quickly the side characters, I, I think it suffers, the story suffers a little, and, and it's cheating because I have comparison of later novels, but the the commitment, the rigid commitment to bouncing from Holden Miller, Holden Miller, Holden Miller, while that makes for kind of an interesting pattern within the storytelling, I think from a character perspective, it hurts it a little bit because there are opportunities to kind of carry emotions through Mm-hmm. For these, this specific group or this specific individual, and it's lost just because you're constantly shifting perspective over yeah. and over mm-hmm. and over. So the I will say, and this is more of just a, a general thing. I I really get excitement whenever I'm reading a book like this where it changes perspective, and you can you can see the mat the the past finally beginning to merge. Oh yeah, and oh, then yeah. you have like the the ending of one chapter. And then it starts with the other character on the next chapter, and it is like the next line of dialogue mm. of what just left off. And yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah, well, you can really feel, and that's that's going to show up in, later. In, in that's writing, a, that's yeah. a later piece, but yeah, we'll we'll get there. Mm-hmm. So I think that we covered character, yeah, pretty yeah. much as, as much as we want to. So moving forward into the plot. Oh yeah. Uh, I guess by default, Joel has to lead this one. No, you need to start it. I started the first one. No, you didn't. I you took did. seven. Well, okay, yeah, I guess he did. <laughs> Uh, so I gave plot an eight. Um, oh wow! So this one 
like you were talking about um, point of view and it being limiting on showing attributes of characters Mm -hmm. with having a rigid format of bouncing back and forth between the two main characters. And I think that that also hurt the plot some too, because there's a lot of political machinations that's going on that we only know a little bit about because they hear about stuff that Earth and Mars are doing on the newsfeed. Yeah, we we have unreliable limited viewpoint narrators, but we also have two of them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and so, and so you don't get to, this is, this is a grand scale mm -hmm. happening, right? That happens over a very long period of time. It does. And so by, by having the, we have three major players in that, as we alluded to before, the two inner planets and -hmm. and the belt as kind of a nebulous sort of loosely connected. A a coalition. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have, we have Miller as a POV for the belt, basically, because mm-hmm. he's he's got kind of the insight into how they work and he he understands and he reads the signs and he translates for the the audience what he sees. Mm. And so you've got that, but you really don't have anything for either of the others, because even though um, Holden is from Earth, like he he's left Earth behind a long time. ago. He's he very has, disconnected. He has yeah. no ties, no well, connections. He, he has family. Well, and I don't think he, but he hadn't talked with his family in like 20 or something. But but it's not like he's been disowned. Yeah. There's there's no no estrangement there. It's just, he was on an ice hauler in the outer rim. He's at at the twilight of his career's trajectory, which is just this rust bucket of an ice hauler in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, and so there was a whole lot of ways that you could tell this story that could have given us a better insight into what was going mm-hmm. on because we already had plenty of, oh no, I have no idea what's happening with the protomolecule. Right. Right. And so we don't have to have that with the political intrigue. And they they actually changed this a little bit. And this is one of the things that I think was was a a very positive change where they actually inserted extra points of view when they adapted it for the the sci-fi TV show. Yeah, they did a great job of inserting characters that show up later on in other books earlier so Mm -hmm. you can you can see multiple perspectives of kind of more the political side of things besides just holden and miller yeah Yeah, that's that and that's kind of maybe the the admission that that and and you see it within later books right the authors kind of accept that hey maybe this is a little too limiting for what we're building well i mean one of their major characters dies at the end so like (laughs) right (laughs) we're just down to one what's that you know i don't and i don't like jumping out ahead yeah. But they do book per book. You're always introduced to somebody new, mm-hmm. a new dynamic. And I always have that moment of, I'm not going to like this person as much as the last. <laughs> and then I absolutely love them. So, yeah, so uh, even, even though we know we lose a main character, we're always going to get good characters going forward. Yeah. yeah the, um, uh, the different perspectives. Um, <laughs> the problem is whenever you're, you have a book like this and you are, you are forcing your reader into these perspectives. Mm-hmm. If the reader doesn't find those perspectives interesting, it's <laughs> yeah. a really hard read. Yeah, yeah well, true. and we we cover this a bit talking about uh, Red Rising, mm-hmm. same same is potential issue, although more magnified. But for you, well, I don't like Miller. Well, that's ha- just half, half of the, the book. book that is a slog. Well, I really didn't like his early stuff. Was and Jim just like yeah. just living his life on series? And then him just kind of like doing like small little breadcrumb things of trying to find Julie Mao and everything. Like I was just so over that after like chapter one. See, see, for me, that kind of slow buildup is fun because, you know, if again, provided you know that you've got a good book in your hand, you know that there's going to be big buildup and payoffs. Oh, yeah. Played out on those. 
it's just you have to have that faith to hold on to that. Yeah, well, it you know, and them having then the perspective of Holden, where it's it's kind of like this run and gun, just you know, make it work. Shoot from the hip. Yeah, yeah shoot from the hip. Make sure that we just don't die. Kind of experience while you know, like he's uh, he's experiencing the Doninger being blown up, mm-hmm. and then he's running. They're running with the Rosinante or Tachi at the time, and um they're they're trying there's just all this other stuff happening and then it's just like all right back to miller just doing his detective trying work to put on his pork pie hat yeah. <laughs> yeah. what 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 did you have for score plot did you plot. did you have a, a plot, plot? did you give us a score for the plot i did not what you got i gave it a nine okay well <laughs> uh, hey we got agreement here i gave it a nine too <laughs> so i like because you touched on the point about you know, Holden's kind of the run and gun, you know, just don't die. And we have this huge disaster. Just, just make it work until we can figure something else right. out. So I love how in the plot we have one of those moments of this isn't that kind of book. And it's fairly early. So we have the initial crew that was on the, I don't, I don't even know, um, the shuttle. The shuttle. That yeah. left the Canterbury. I don't remember if it had a name. The it, night. It, is the night? The yeah. Night. Okay. I think that was a shortening because like. Yeah. Like, it, it, there was, was some. Yeah, yeah. Either way. But we have the, the initial crew, and then they, they end up on the Doniger before the battle breaks out. And you have the prototypical perfect crew. You have the captain with ideals, a hyper-capable XO, great pilot, star mechanic, and a medic. We've fulfilled all of the necessary – and the medic's dead. <laughs> yep. And it's just one of those where it's just like this isn't one of those kind of stories where everyone's going to last forever and be yeah. a perfect – Interval working cogs, y'all are gonna have to figure this out and make it work. Yeah, and I, I, I like that also the fact that again, it's the one person who potentially could have fixed a problem that happened. Obviously, the way it actually happens, there's no fixing it, but it's the medic who gets shot. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that initial moment for me was really jarring because it's just one of those. Oh, like I thought, like this was gonna be my characters that I was gonna be with, and it's like, okay, we, we're going to have to accept now. This is this is not that kind of story, mm-hmm. and I love that kind of beat hitting in a plot fairly early on just to really establish tone and say, hey, this is the story you're getting. This is what this is what your expectation should be. Everyone's at risk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sorry, just gotta lift up my notes so I can actually see it. Uh the, going back to Joel's points here about hard magic and soft magic, I, I did make a point that that even the the quote unquote magic within the setting, within the plot, ultimately comes off more as horror. Mm-hmm. which is kind of your own thing because it is the obstacle and it's, it's a really good obstacle for them to try to work around and, yeah. and figure out because from the reader's perspective, we know nothing because our characters don't know a thing yeah. for basically their whole encounter with it. And I, I really tried to look and try to find holes in the plot and it's really hard because not because they took a magic system and papered over the holes, but because they took a viewpoint system and they gave you two really they, limited viewpoints. Yeah, so, so they're not, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. It makes it really hard to poke holes in the plot because you didn't get a close look at it. <laughs> yeah, well, you yeah. can say, well, how was I supposed to know this was going to happen? Was, well, no one else got to know this was going to happen either. So it just, yeah. it happens somewhere else. You don't get to know it. Tough, deal with it. I, I think that that was kind of just a funny result of the way the perspective was chosen was just, there are no plot holes because you don't get to know Jack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, send it to Andrew. Well, you know, so I gave it a nine. I, yeah, I, I still love there. the, I still love the story. Um, and I, I talked what I kind of said, what I didn't like, which is mostly Miller's mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what, I, whenever, whenever, whenever like the, the two, the, <laughs> like the way he walks, 
<laughs> whenever the two storylines, Holden and, and Miller's kind of merge on mm. Eros, and then they, they go through the whole ordeal of trying to get back to their ship and, and get off, and then they have, um, they basically get exposed to radiation, mm-hmm. uh, him and Miller, or Holden and Miller, while they're, and, while they're trying and it's to... Not- their initial escape. meeting is not a friendly alliance. No. It is not a happy-go-lucky, oh, we're best of friends now. Like, that is not how this works. Mm-hmm. And it, it progresses to where they, they finally find um, the, the dark station. Um, and they, they know that the, that the scientists that are working on the protomolecule are there, mm-hmm. essentially. And uh, the Rosinante goes. And the, probably the, the best example of what um, space combat would actually be mm-hmm. uh, in a truly exhilarating sequence mm-hmm. in the book where the Rosinante is going against two to one versus stealth ships. And right. they, they don't have, they don't have like a rail. All they have is just PDCs and torpedoes at this point, point. Point defense cannon, basically just machine guns mm-hmm. that, that are, are, that are, that are meant, computerized, meant to mostly shoot down incoming torpedoes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not like meant to like shoot other ships. Yeah. And uh, Alex and Amos just make make this fantastic just battle, like so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really, I mean, like, you know, because at this point in the book, you don't know who's going to live. Well, it's, it's, it's also interesting, too, in that because it's not like when you're saying it's, it's this gripping and interesting fight sequence. It's not because the fight itself is being described yeah. because it's not because your point of view is Miller is uh, Holden. Uh, Holden who is not the pilot. Yeah. He is not directly interfacing with the tactical decisions being made. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's on he's, the, str- he's, he's on the strategic level on there for and, the ride. Yeah. And so what is being described through this is his experience of feeling the, the hygiene maneuvers that they're mm-hmm. going through to try to dodge incoming fire and seeing the bits of shrapnel that are flying through the depressurized cabin when they get <laughs> hit with PDC fire and the rounds just go straight through the ship. Mm-hmm. And, and they're fine because they already evacuated all the air and they're in suits, but like you, you have this, this tension and this, this constant fear of any one of them could just and die at any second. Cause you already saw you, it. You, you already the, been introduced. The yeah. Medic did yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also to, to your point about the intensity of the battle, cause with, when they're on the Donager, again, they're not active participants in the fight. And you get a little bit of knowledge about what's going on because Alex is basically saying, well, there's, there's your torpedoes. That's railgun fire. Yeah. PDCs are going off. We've got stuff coming really close to us, but you don't actually get to experience it until the immediacy of that first hit punches through their room. Mm-hmm. Whereas here again, we just saw, you know, cause the Donager is promoted as it's the, the, the best in its class, the biggest, baddest, and it gets its butt whooped. Mm-hmm. And now we're finding the, the flip side of, well, how do you fight this type of opponent? And it's shenanigans, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, close quarter and, and get in there and just yeah, the, try and, you know, outmaneuver them, basically. Yeah, the, the long range brute strength doesn't work. So we find a new approach, basically. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, that's again, like the, for this the, segment, oftentimes we would sit here and be like, oh, well, they missed this. They could have, and we just, we can't because you don't, one, it's, it's a well written story. Yeah. And two, you just don't get enough perspective to be able to punch holes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess I wasn't I wasn't the biggest fan of the climax of the of the whole book. Um, yeah, because of, it was pretty Miller centric. It was it pretty was all Miller centric. Well, <laughs> mostly just because he's just he's just talking to himself, or he's he's well, just it's, like it's, it's the resolution of the character arc, right? No, like the, I, I, I I understand that and I accept it. 
and that is totally fine. What what is that? I I understand it, and I don't have to like it. I I, I don't no. It's I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. But I accept it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it it also gets because you're dealing very very closely with proto molecule. It gets very very soft magic right abstract. but like but like yeah. he's not I, I think the key here is that if he was like i get infected and then i'm going to do the thing that is your protagonist using the soft magic to mm-hmm. solve resol- mm-hmm. to resolve the conflict which is not what happens right because what well, all he does is he makes a human connection and and he he exp- so through through that narrative kind of the the nature of his sacrifice is kind of examined mm-hmm. and you know what, what he is doing is he's decided to, he has decided that something actually matters, right? right? He's gone through all this life with, he's just kind of going through the motions. Nothing matters, mm-hmm. but he has finally decided Julie matters and whatever this thing is, it's still Julie. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where I'm going to be. And it's, it's a little weird. I mean, yeah, sure. It's a little weird. And you're not supposed to understand how it works because protomolecule, right? Like we're not at the level. I don't, I don't mean that. I mean like his, his acceptance of this is my worldview now. It's a little weird. His, his. It's okay. But it's not entirely stable. (laughs) Nobody really is because again, we're, we're dealing with burnt out. Yeah. End of trajectory characters essentially. So yeah. Well, I think covers the plot pretty well for Mm -hmm. us. So we're going to move forward into writing writing and i'm trying to turn my page so i'm gonna take this first because i'm gonna see all the good points and leave y'all with the tidbits so i gave writing a nine and i think the biggest selling point again is how the writing built the world and specifically with the belter language mm-hmm. yeah the yeah, really the, the belter creole is really right. cool the 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 blending of various languages because it is a a blended society Mm -hmm. but also the uh, emphasis on how again space living has been built into their own language where you have the shrugs but you shrug with a hand because you're wearing a suit so no one's going to see you shrug your shoulders and that's just accepted commonplace activity for these people so you build it into it's it's the slang right Mm -hmm. we always mostly always talk about well how do they build and one of the world ways to build is slang or curse words and that kind of little extra tidbits is just that little extra piece of spice on top of all the technological world building that really sells it for me and i think that all comes in in the writing because you had to sit down and and basically play you know token and create a language yeah and Mm -hmm. it's it's a little cheating because you know that's it's fairly if even if you don't understand french or spanish etc you can still, for the most part, I think, suss it out, mm-hmm. what's being said. Yeah, uh, the only counterpoint that I would have to that is really more that uh, traditionally, as you know, humanity gets older and we expand out, Mandarin is probably going to be the more commonly accepted um, uh, well, I mean, cultural cultural influence just because it's, it, it's so much more widespread from, than something from a, like from a realism standpoint sure yeah from See, a I, I'm writing this book to be read by Americans standpoint no no like I, I totally See, I totally understand that yeah. See I think and it's interesting because you, you made that point right you don't get a tremendous amount of Chinese influence on culture 
you do get a ton of Indian influence, especially in the later books. You yeah. really see it. Mm -hmm. And I think that fits because it, it's really easy for us in present day sociopolitical, economic society, whatever, to say, oh, well, China is going to be the clear winner. But in terms of population, India is right behind them. Yeah. And now economically, sure, you can make other arguments, but that doesn't guarantee a, a winner. Yeah, yeah like yeah. In, in, in two, three hundred years, a lot can change. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, absolutely. if you back up two hundred years, well, we, we're just all British. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I guess, <laughs> how it works. I guess my, I guess my point would be um, it's just them choosing basically like New Orleans Creole as like the base of their of the Belter communication and and culture yeah, was I mean, was an interesting choice. I don't I don't mind it at all. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. I just don't think from a realistic perspective that would ever be a thing. Well, it also is indicative not of what is the most populous subgroup of humanity, but which group of humanity was pushed out. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's totally fair. Like it's, you know, like uh, clearly there's there's a class warfare uh, style of of um, politics happening mm -hmm. here. And obviously the people that are working in the belt are the lower class, the have nots right. that yeah. that have are, are Which, basically blue collar workers that have been forced into, you know, basically providing resources for Earth and Mars mm -hmm. and and. You know, clearly they they have a resistance. They have the OPA. They're upset about this, and you know, shenanigans happen. It, yeah. it fits too, because again, from your argument, you're saying, well, Mandarin should be the greater influence. Well, if they were the the victors in the cultural war, mm -hmm. then they're all on Earth, and and you see it, right? That's fair. Yeah, we have that's Julie totally Mao. Yeah, I mean, yes, it like a lot of the, uh, especially like the Mars, mm -hmm. um, uh, MCRN people. They're they're pretty much all Asian oriented. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just interesting just the fact that like, just from other stuff, I'll say like Firefly or Outlaw Star and mm -hmm. everything like that, like Mandarin a Chinese, Chinese is Chinese very, yes. very heavily influenced. It is. Yes. I mean, it, it is. And it's, again, I think it, it does end up boiling down to Joel's point of this is not people who are out in the belt were not the winners of the yeah. socioeconomic struggle. And, yeah. And that is actually a fair point. Yeah. Uh, so my only other big point, and you kind of touched on this, Andrew, uh, it's Miller's perspective mm -hmm. because we don't have, you know, this is not a 16-year-old YA, our, our chosen protagonist with his wise guiding hand throughout the story yeah. for the character or not the character, but the reader to be introduced to concepts by the character asking questions, not knowing how the world works, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's really not a lot of exposition. Right. We, what we, but we do get is, and you talk about this, with Miller's early chapters, we get kind of a translation of him of, just living his life. Right, of what this life is like and what other people are saying and doing and why, why mm. they are doing it because he has that kind of the detective, the analytical mind. He just, he sees it and he processes the why just yeah. automatically. So I think that that helped because it's not a, "Quote unquote neophyte style character, yeah, but it still lets us learn a lot as a reader. Well, and I, I mean, I, I gave it points for that. That was actually pretty much exactly what I was going to say. Okay, was well, I, I, I gave it an eight note, out of ten. Yeah, take over. Um, for for basically that that reason is because there's no overt ex exposition from uh, the main characters asking questions to mm -hmm. someone else that just knows everything. Uh, you you do get to experience the universe with them. Mm -hmm. And through that experience, it you do 
get the same explanation just in a, a longer amount of time throughout mm-hmm. the book instead of just like this is how right. you know, society it's, works. It's just the the basic tenet of don't info dump. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And you know it's uh, it's very very much the the show don't tell mm-hmm. style of storytelling which I love. Like it's yeah. fantastic. Uh Joel. Well, I also gave the writing an 8 mm-hmm. out of 10. Um I thought that there was the the descriptions were were plentiful, right? Like like mm-hmm. it was it was a very very rich book in terms of like we got to understand how things looked and felt. There were a lot of senses beyond sight that were used all over the place in in the descriptive language, mm-hmm. uh, which really enriches your understanding and like your immersion into into the writing. Yeah, um, and and it, but it wasn't like like wordy or or frilly to like bog it down. It wasn't it was, Jules Verne levels of description. Yeah, it was it was it was or efficient. Robert Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually. See Robert Jordan though, like that's that's elevating it to an art. I feel like because his his prose is just amazing. Like I've no, you're bog, good. No, the, you're the, safe, the bog the bog down in his work is more plot related than 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 Somewhat. the writing. I, I do think, and this is a totally different topic for a totally right. different episode. I do think he does run into an issue of I don't need to know what every single thing in front of this character's eyes looks like. No, that that's that's true. Like you need to be drawn in. Uh-huh. Um, but you don't have to live there. Right. <laughs> well, and there's there's a, an advantage in the expanse throughout, right? In that none there are no grand sweeping vistas by default. The biggest, grandest, sweepingest of vista is just blank space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's about as easy a description as you need. Yep. And then they're just like, it's the void. Yeah. It is death. And it's uncomfortable. <laughs> but here's this neat hallway and it you can smell that little bit of oxidation as the one of the wires is burning. Mm-hmm. And that means I need to check that filter before it goes bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to, I did want to add, actually, no, never mind. This is an entertainment perspective. So okay. we can, we can keep talking about it. Uh, so, so anyway, the, the last point that I have about the writing and it's, it's kind of going back to the, to the descriptions, but also like what the authors chose to focus on mm-hmm. um, during their, their descriptive text. Uh, there, they are, focusing on the experiences that the main characters have going through thrust, for instance, mm-hmm. like, right. Like when the engines are on, on, on heavy burn, like three times earth gravity or, or, or even more at some points talks about how that feels on their body, mm-hmm. right? Like what, what that experience is like, because that's something that the vast majority of us have absolutely no idea, no idea what that feels like. Right. I mean, right. we can we can think about it and we can speculate, but we have not experienced that. And to be able to bring that in very personal terms and say the, you know, their their eyes felt like this because they were so heavy, and there was, you know, the the pressure on their arms and their legs and their 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 stomach, and just you know the way that they brought it all together made it feel like you could know what that felt like. Right. And I think they cover it well, too. Uh, we see the bit when they first get off the Donager, right? They get off the Donager with the uh, the Martian Marines, mm-hmm. who throughout the series always get the best send-outs in all the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have the, I don't know if it's a corporal, a captain, I cannot remember. The lieutenant's lieutenant. the one that makes it on the yeah. ship right. with them. And he, he has the the information, the vital information that has to get out but he has a like his his armor's been damaged, his ribs are cracked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they they make a very clear point that I think it's from Holden's perspective, obviously, because they're on the Donager. Mm-hmm. He knows, Holden knows, and the lieutenant knows 
that when they go up to anything above one G, it's going to kill the lieutenant. Yeah, like that's that's just the nature of his injuries and how they're positioned. Yeah, et cetera. there's just no way. There's to, no yeah. choice, and it's it's the acceptance that they both know the reality of their situation, and the answer is still pull the trigger, put the pedal down. We have like that is what we have to do, mm-hmm. and it's it's really interesting because we again we get the mechanics and the the description of kind of the push of gravity and also the the counter force that is the juice right mm-hmm. that's being pumped in just to to basically prop up their bodies under this pressure which which is just you know low grade methamphetamine or high grade or high grade whatever you want to call it <laughs> yeah. i mean uh, that was actually my point earlier that i was going to say but it was i just i love the concept of the juice yeah mm-hmm. uh because of how it is essentially propping up the, our frail bodies to make space travel Possible. And, and, and they yeah. did a really good job in in this novel about showing you the consequences of using that because there's even a point where Holden specifically restrains them from going to high G because he he weighs the consequences of what the after effects of using the juice mm-hmm. is going to do to them and he doesn't think that trade off is worth it in that situation mm-hmm. and so that's that's really good too where you you give drawbacks to your assets yeah yes. All right. Well, on that note, we're we're kind of bleeding into entertainment. So yeah. we're going to hit our final category. Obviously, it didn't go into the composite score. It has its own separate category that we already went over prior mm-hmm. to. It was a 9.3. Yep. So spoilers, there's some high numbers coming. <laughs> and we're going to start off with the highest. So I'll kick it over to Andrew. I gave it a 10. Yeah. Uh, I've I've read the book twice um, and I'll probably read it a third time then- just so I can reread the whole series now that it's completely out. And just so I can go back to back to back to back. Yeah. To back. yeah. And that's despite not liking 50% of the, the yeah. point of view. <laughs> it, I mean, it's it, like in, in the odd thing is too, like, I think it's just because like the entertainment value is so high because you don't know anything going into the story by mm-hmm. this point. So there's no preconceived notions of what to expect. And everything you get is just a good escalation of what you thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. To where like, oh, I think there's going to be a space battle. That was a heck of a space battle. And it, it just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating to where like even like even if I don't like Miller as a character, I can still understand what he's doing, why he's doing it. And it makes it more interesting than than not. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, amazing read. Um, I'm going to do it again at some point. Like, it's great. Yeah. So I am going to jump in. And just, you know, I gave it a nine. Uh, I have not sat down and read it multiple times. Although you make a great point about now that the series is complete, mm-hmm. going back and just going boom, 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 yeah. boom. Uh, because um, well, I actually did that uh, almost <laughs> almost all that. I left off the first three books mm-hmm. back when we thought we had a different schedule ahead of us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it would be nice to go back and just go through the whole thing kind of at, a, at its own pace. Yeah. Not, you just you just read it not having to, you know, finish two books in a week. End. Yes, uh, <laughs> but overall, I mean, this is this is fantastic and and phenomenal. I mean, it, it it on its own strength from from Andrew's recommendation and Lauren's recommendation, the first book carried me through the first five books just yeah. on its own momentum, and mm-hmm. then you know life kind of got in the way and it fell off, etc. But it, it's a great start, and for the most part, it really only kind of gets better from here in entertainment 
Yeah. So that's that is its own. You know, don't just take this nine point three and say, well, maybe that's nine or somehow that's not a good enough score for my entertainment. It gets better from here, people. Yeah, like, it's, like it's just up. And I, and I would definitely say, at least for me, Leviathan Wakes is probably one of my least favorite books. Still a ten out of the series, still and it's twice. still a ten. <laughs> Joel. Well, I I gave it a nine. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a pit stop and disagree. I think I think Leviathan Wakes is one of the better Man, entries. One of the better ones because it's Head Miller. Because it had Miller. No, in it. actually, not because it had Miller. It, it, but it it does have a it, lot. It's one of the more complete plots, right? Yeah, because yeah. there's there's a lot in the second one that like really should have just been the first one. Like the the middle entry, because it's it's kind of split up into three trilogies that are just yeah. kind of contiguous back to back. And the middle entry in each one are the weakest books out of the series, in my opinion. Um, I don't know. Caliban's War is really good, but I I think. Abaddon's Cal- Gate is the best of the best of the trilogy for the first three books. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, that's beyond the scope I of, digress. of this conversation. <laughs> uh, but no, like it's it's getting to go through the steps of, oh, now we get to find out this facet of mm-hmm. how the world has developed, right? It's this constant trickle feed of of information about how the the world got to where it is and how it's being presented to you yeah and then every time you feel like you understand it something is new is thrown at you or the protomolecule attacks mm-hmm. and you know and you're just completely swept off your feet again of i have i have no idea what's going on like i have all of this this background knowledge and that and that pool of background knowledge is building and building and building as we go along, but like I still mm-hmm. need more. And mm-hmm. so that experience of never feeling like you've had enough and yeah. you constantly want more is exactly what I'm looking for in in a read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was just great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, high marks all around. Obviously, we all pretty much loved it. Yep. Throughout, except for, you know, Andrew hated half of it, still loved it. <laughs> not it I mean, if that's if that's not enough of an endorsement. Andrew only only really liked fifty percent of this book, and that fifty percent is still a ten. It's still a hundred percent. So by default, <laughs> Holden must be like a twenty if Miller's like a zero to make that a ten. Somehow. Anyways, enough no, really, math. just Amos. He's the best character. Well, well, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. You gotta get a little further before he gets really. Yeah, good. I mean, Amos is just fantastic. Though. Yeah, and all all the all of the characters, even though we were handed, uh, you know, two perspectives for a whole book. Uh, everyone else gets their time in the sun mm-hmm. and yeah. it really shows through. So on that note, I do believe that that is all the time we have for this episode. So until next time, I'm Steven. I'm Andrew. And I'm Joel. And every spoiler was intended. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, you can support the show for as low as $1 at patreon.com slash spoilers intended podcast. We also have a discord server and would love to have more people joining in the conversation. Links are in the description below. Thank you.